morning. Our first case is uh, Taylor et al. versus Bank of America. I'll note that Justice Berger is recused in this case. We will hear from the appellant. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, I'm Brad Cutro, and with my co-counsel, Keith Levenberg, I represent Bank of America, and I'd like to reserve seven minutes of my time for rebuttal. This case is back before this court after another step on its unconventional path, but the Superior Court's ruling below was conventional and correct because it was consistent with this court's precedence. The Superior Court held that because each of the plaintiffs was well aware of their injury many years before their lawsuit was filed in 2018, their claims were time barred by the statute of limitations. That is a straightforward application of this court's precedence, unanimous opinion and precedent in Christenberry versus Medflow and other decisions from this court. As Judge Dillon's dissent again indicates, Judge Bell got it right in the Superior Court and the Court of Appeals got it right the first time in the unanimous panel decision by Judge Berger, then Judge Berger, Judge Dillon, and Judge Young. Judge D Dillon's dissent has carried that reasoning forward. In contrast, the second Court of Appeals majority, formed only after <coughs> plaintiff's petition for rehearing, has gotten it wrong again. In its second opinion, the two-judge majority erred in three ways. First, it failed to acknowledge or properly apply this court's precedents, including Christenberry, which holds expressly that a plaintiff's notice of its injury is what starts the statute of limitations. The Court of Appeals majority never used that phrase, which appears four times in Christenberry. It never even used the word injury, which appears only in Judge Dillon's dissent. And the Court of Appeals majority never cited or addressed Christenberry, although it was a focus of our briefing. It also ignored its own Court of Appeals precedents, like Doe versus Diocese of Charlotte, applying the same notice of injury analysis. In this case, plaintiffs affirmatively pled that they knew that they had been improperly denied HAMP loan modifications and knew about their foreclosures. That is notice of their injury as a matter of law, as Judge Dillon's dissents, plural, recognize. Second, the majority substituted a new actual knowledge standard for the objective notice inquiry and reasonable diligence standard applied in this court's precedents for many years. These precedents call for an objective standard when the injury becomes apparent or should reasonably become apparent. Instead, the Court of Appeals majority applied a actual knowledge standard saying when plaintiffs became aware of the fraud, not the injury, and it omitted or could have become aware in the exercise of reasonable diligence. There's no case that extends the statute of limitations indefinitely as long as a plaintiff makes a conclusory assertion that they were subjectively unaware of a fraud. Third, the reconstituted Court of Appeals panel's majority has never addressed or reversed the race judicata collateral estoppel ruling made unanimously by the original Court of Appeals panel and by Judge Bell in the Superior Court. So this court should reverse the Court of Appeals decision and affirm the Superior Court's Rule 12b6 dismissal. Now I'll first address the statute of limitations arguments and then turn to the race judicata and collateral estoppel arguments. And to begin, here's some brief background on the federal HAMP loan modification program. HAMP was created by the federal government and rolled out very rapidly in early 2009. Its eligibility requirements were all promulgated by the federal government and were widely publicized to borrowers. Mortgage servicers like Bank of America then undertook virtually overnight to implement the federal HAMP programs for loans that they serviced. All the plaintiffs here alleged that they applied, applied for loan modifications in 2009 or 2010, but were improperly denied despite fully complying with HAMP's requirements. As a result, they alleged that their loans went to foreclosure. All of plaintiffs' foreclosures took place in 2011 or 2013, except one that was in January of 2014. But their complaint was not filed until May of 2018, more than four years after the last foreclosure pled by any of these plaintiffs. By then, all their claims were time barred. As Judge Dillon's dissent says, the denial of a HAMP loan modification resulting in foreclosure was sufficient to put each of the plaintiffs on notice of his or her injury. So that on the face of the complaint, 
their claims are barred by the statute of limitations. Christenbury held, North Carolina has long recognized the principle that a party must timely bring an action upon discovery of an injury to avoid dismissal of the claim. Here, the plaintiffs were all on notice of their injuries years before their new lawyers told them they could file a lawsuit about HAMP based on old information from 2012 and 2013. But the most recent panel decision ignored Christenbury and did not even cite it and failed to address, as I've indicated, Doe versus Diocese of Charlotte and the other cases that hold that notice of injury triggers a duty of inquiry in fraud cases. This is the duty to exercise reasonable diligence to discover the fraud or misrepresentations that give rise to the claim. Instead, the majority sub substituted its own standard to hold that when plaintiffs became aware of the fraud will be dispositive of the statute of limitations issue. That contradicts Christenbury. That's an actual knowledge standard, not the notice inquiry and reasonable diligence objective standard in, these court, court, in this court's precedence. Uh, in the amended complaint, each plaintiff alleges knowledge of facts that were sufficient to put them on inquiry notice more than four years before they filed suit. They allege they knew that they'd all completed all the steps and submitted all the required information for a loan modification, but were told they needed to resend re information they'd already sent. That's in the amended complaint at paragraphs 50, 80, 109, and so on for each plaintiff. And also in the argument transcript in the Superior Court at pages 693 to 94. Or the plaintiffs allege they got a trial payment plan and completed it properly, but were told that they hadn't done so. Or that they completed trial payment plans, but no modification was approved. Or the modification was approved, but the loan still went to foreclosure. And each plaintiff alleges the same injuries as a result of these, these uh, series of events, that the HAMP loan modification was improperly denied and that the loan went into foreclosure or short sale. These are significant setbacks for any borrower. Denial of a loan modification and foreclosure were more than sufficient significant events to put each of the plaintiffs on notice of their injury. And at that point, as the original Court of Appeals opinion by Judge Young says, they had a duty to inquire into the defendant's business practices. A corollary to the precedent in Christenbury is that a potential plaintiff has a duty of inquiry that it must exercise, uh, and, it, and it must exercise reasonable diligence in investigating a potential claim of fraud once an event occurs that puts the plaintiff on inquiry notice. Counsel, can I ask you, is the determination of whether or not they have in, uh, whether or not the plaintiffs have engaged in reasonable diligence or not, um, is that a, a it, it, why wouldn't that be a jury question? It's, it's not here, Your Honor, because in the amended complaint, Justice Earls, they've not pled any diligence. They've not pled anything that they did, certainly not anything post-foreclosure that they did to exercise any diligence. And in fact, we know that other similarly situated litigants did exercise diligence and were able to bring timely claims shortly after their uh, loan denials or their foreclosures in the many cases that we've cited. But at least as I understand the complaint, the allegations of the complaint, they're alleging that, that, they, that they reasonably found out about the fact that these, the injury, which is different from knowing that there was something fraudulent that caused their injury, that their knowledge that there was, that there was fraud going on occurred once they consulted attorneys. Yeah. And, and the question of whether or not that's reasonable, why wouldn't that be a jury question? Well, Your Honor, because it's clear from the face of the complaint that they, they knew enough at the time, certainly at the, of their foreclosures, to know that they should begin to do something to inquire or investigate because they had a series of experiences which I've just sort of narrated, all of which were not typical, not expected, and which resulted in the denial of their loan modification, which then resulted in their foreclosure. And, and any exercise of diligence at that point could have readily led them to information that would have permitted them to bring a timely claim. For example, any, any simple search for information about the HAMP loan modification program would have turned up evidence of pending litigation. By 2012, it would have turned up evidence of the national consent decree that had been investigated. A simple inquiry to any lawyer would to say, this is a problem, my HAMP loan modification has been denied, what can I do about it, would have triggered some very targeted advice. What the argument from, from the plaintiffs is here is that 
they can wait and exercise no diligence until they connect with another lawyer who brings them at a later date information that dates back to 2012 and 2013. And we submit that that's not the exercise of reasonable diligence, and we further submit that the series of events that are affirmatively pled in the amended complaint put the plaintiffs on notice sufficiently so that they had a duty to inquire and investigate whether their experiences gave rise to any kind of a claim. Uh, so I, under I understood your, your argument to be actually even more specific than that because it's, it's not just that there are that you're saying there were there was this information out there that could have been found. It's that the complaint itself, so you know, I'm looking at there's several sections where it says in the complaint, in a separate lawsuit brought by the federal government in 2012, Bank of America was required to pay billions of dollars for fraud. The conduct complained of herein involves the identical issues of fact and law raised in the federal lawsuit. That, and it goes on and does the same thing with the multi-district litigation. That's correct, so Your Honor. I understand your theory to be these are matters of public record. So anyone that did a reasonable inquiry, uh, you, you pre we presume as a matter of law that you would discover matters of public record involving the same facts, same issues that are available for anyone. And therefore, in the face of the complaint, anyone conducting the inquiry notice requirements that we've said is, is in our case law, uh, you know, would have started the statute running at, at the latest when the homes were foreclosed. And that's why you say at tw you know, 12 v 6 stage, you can win on the statute of limitations argument. That, that's right, Your Honor, and, and you've pointed, um, as I was getting ready to, to amended complaint paragraph 32, which recites in the amended complaint itself in the 2012 consent judgment in the national mortgage settlement by the federal government, which was widely publicized. It, the 2012 consent judgment was indeed put into the 12B6 record by the plaintiffs. Um, and so deficiencies in the HAMP process and the kind of problems uh, that are now the subject of this amended complaint were were widely publicized and easy to learn about back in 2012. Um, and so, because just to be clear, there, there could be a scenario where lawyers know about some fraud that some corporation is engaging in. They're investigating it, they're pursuing it, but it's not something that would be a matter of public record. And that's so not this case, Your Honor. That's what I'm saying. So the, our holding in this case would not be that, essentially, if you don't go and find the right lawyer within the from the time's running of your injury so that you now know about the fraud, you've lost your right even if there's no way really you could have known unless you found those particular lawyers. You're, the argument you're making is in the face of the complaint, uh, there are public records in uh, not only a massive suit involving 49 states and the federal government, but also a giant multi-district litigation proceeding involving all these different federal courts with the what the complaint alleges are the identical facts and legal issues. And that, that's right, Your Honor, and, and that is uh, affirmatively pled in the amended complaint in paragraph 33 as well, that by, t the, you know, the many cases we've cited show that similar claims about HAMP denials were being asserted as far back as 2009, including in North Carolina. We cited the Traber case from the Court of Appeals where those plaintiffs uh, pro se were able to bring lawsuits making the same kind of allegations in 2009, 2010, 2011, and that we submit goes to what reasonable diligence would have looked like and would have permitted. But apart from that, the, you know, again, in the, in the complaint itself uh, is pled in, in paragraph 33, uh, excuse me, 32, the MDL, which was uh, initiated by dozens of class actions in 2010, uh, gathered into an MDL by 2013, which was a, a matter of widespread publicity and public record. And it's also indicative that individual plaintiffs and individual uh, litigants around the country were able to bring these claims timely back in 2010, 2011, and 2013. Um, that we submit uh, it is indicative both at a specific level and in terms of what was a matter of, of public record, and, and certainly this court is aware from the many cases we've cited uh, that many litigants were able to bring timely claims because they exercised reasonable diligence. It's not a matter of finding the right lawyer, it's just a matter of doing some, some diligence because this was all readily ascertainable by 2012. So, but, but uh, and to, to summarize, the HAMP, HAMP MDL decision from 2013 shows that those plaintiff borrowers were making essentially the same allegations against Bank of America and they filed timely lawsuits alleging the same kinds of claims by 2010 when the MDL began. That establishes a benchmark for reasonable diligence. Many others whose HAMP mods were denied filed claims no later than 2013. But the plaintiffs are arguing 
for a new and different rule that statutes of limitation should be told for however long it takes for a lawyer to tell someone that they have a claim based on old information that in fact is readily ascertainable and a matter of public record. In the complaint, each plaintiff pleads simply by rote that they did not know and could not have known of their injury until they retained their present counsel. But it's never been the law in this state that a statute of limitation was told until a potential litigant decided to retain a lawyer, let alone a new lawyer who provided old information. Now, plaintiffs also try to uh, recast fraudulent concealment as a separate injury rather than as a tolling doctrine. But fraudulent concealment doesn't apply here. Bank of America didn't do anything to delay or deter the filing of plaintiff's suit. And in fact, as we've discussed, other suits against the bank were being filed by other disappointed HAMP applicants here and elsewhere. Nothing is pled in the complaint that would support fraudulent concealment. Uh, Doe versus Diocese of Charlotte and the cases it cites make clear that these plaintiffs were on inquiry notice. So they were required to take reasonable steps to investigate whether they had a claim. Yeah, and, and again, it isn't, because I'm focused on, it. you know, it's, it's, it's a Rule 12 motion, so I'm focused on what's in the pleas. But the, it seems to me that the statement in, you described in paragraph 32 of the complaint, where it says that the, the argument the federal government and the 49 states made against Bank of America and the other banks the, the allegation in this complaint is the conduct complained of herein involves identical issues in fact and law raised in the federal lawsuit. So even if there was any fraudulent concealment, this allegation would defeat that argument because it can't be concealed if it's being argued in a, uh, in a federal lawsuit brought by the United States. Uh, that's exactly right, Justice Deeds. And, and of course there were widespread news coverage and, and press releases, media releases by the federal government and by all of the state attorneys general who were involved in that. So this was widely publicized. It was not anything that was concealed or hidden. And other courts looking at these similar allegations have reached exactly the same conclusion in the HAMP context, in the HAMP loan modification context. And we point the court specifically to the Cantrell Federal District Court decision from Arkansas and to the Mendoza decision from California from the Ninth Circuit. Both of those cases decided in March 2018 before this lawsuit was even filed. And they both held plaintiffs had plenty of notice of the kinds of allegations that they were making. They were on notice, they were on inquiry notice to, to investigate their claims and they could not toll the statutes of limitations that applied to their claims uh, because of some inability to discover the fraud. Here under Christenberry and its precedence, the statutes of limitation began to run when the plaintiffs were aware of their injuries, which was at the latest when their loans went into foreclosure and short sale. That's what the original Court of Appeals panel held and as Judge Dillon maintains. Uh, no plaintiff has pled any diligence that would toll the statute of limitations. And under North Carolina General Statute 1-21, the door closing statute, the out-of-state plaintiffs have the burden to show that their claims are timely under their own state, home state statute of limitations analysis before they even get to the North Carolina statute of limitations. And they failed to do that in the Superior Court. That's an additional ground for statute of limitations dismissal. So the court should, dismiss, should affirm the dismissal on statute of limitations grounds. Before you move on from that, can I quickly ask you about the um, general statute 1-21? So I, I, do, I did have a question about how, that, how it would work. Imagine the parties come in, so you have a plaintiff and a defendant in a case, but there's actually many plaintiffs from all these different states. And so there is this question about how that statute applies. And the parties just say to the court, Your Honor, there are so many states out there, and this is a novel question about the statute of limitations. It's too much for us. We can't figure it out. Whose burden is it at the, in the trial court, before the trial court to do the work of saying, here's the law in all these other states about when, how the statute of limitations applies? Well, I think under, under the statute, that imposes a burden on the plaintiff to show first as a predicate uh, for their entire lawsuit that they could have brought their claim timely in their home state. In my experience with this statute started with a case here in Wake County where a California plaintiff whose statute had expired in California tried to sue my client here in North Carolina and we found the, the NCGS 1-21 pointed it out to the court that the statute of limitations had expired in California and, and the result was a 12B6 dismissal. But I would submit that the statute makes it the plaintiff's burden to show that they could bring a timely claim under their home state's 
uh, statute before they can then invoke any benefit of the, nor of the procedural benefit of the North Carolina Forum. So, I, I mean, I, I understand that argument, but I think your friend, your friend for the plaintiffs is going to argue, but the statute of limitations is an affirmative defense. So it really should be on the party moving for, for judgment based on that to provide the legal argument to the court so they do the legwork of going out and saying, here's, and, and so I think your friend is going to argue, we, you know, it wasn't our job to map all of that out. Uh, you know, that was your client's job. And so what's your response to that? Well, uh, I will, I will uh, answer just, Justice Dietz only on that. We, we certainly pointed that out at the Superior Court level. Uh, the most expeditious route to uh, a just 12B6 ruling in Judge Bell's view was the North Carolina statute, and we certainly uh, believe that was the right decision. So, in other words, it really, if, you, if we determine it's barred under the North Carolina statute, then, you then really don't need to out. worry about that. That's exactly right. Um, so, um, I'll now turn to the race judicata and collateral estoppel arguments. Uh, both the Superior Court and the First Court of Appeals panel also concluded that the plaintiff's claims were barred by the foreclosure orders that had been entered in, in each of their uh, situations. One element of a foreclosure is a valid debt based on a valid loan agreement, and a second element is that there's been a default under that loan agreement. So for each foreclosure, there was an adjudicated determination that the plaintiff's original loan agreement, unmodified, was valid and enforceable and created that valid debt. The amended complaint claims that the plaintiffs were induced to default on their mortgage loans and they, they were injured by the foreclosure itself and that the failure to obtain a loan modification led to their foreclosures. Accepting those allegations is true. Each plaintiff was obligated to raise those challenges in the course of their foreclosure proceedings or, as the Funderburk versus J.P. Morgan Chase case reminds us, in an action to enjoin the foreclosure. But plaintiffs all allege affirmatively that their foreclosures were completed and use that as the basis for their damages. Under our precedents, as well as those in the federal cases we've cited involving HAMP claims, race judicata and collateral estoppel bar post-foreclosure attempts to challenge the validity of the debt or the default. And alleging that a plaintiff was entitled to a loan modification that would supersede the existing or former loan necessarily does that ju just that. It is just such a collateral attack on the foreclosure adjudication. Uh, so, in closing, I, let me, I guess I'd say um, that is a, a, a collateral attack and to address perhaps another aspect of the, of the multi-state, uh, home state nature of this particular group of plaintiffs, that would be a collateral attack by a North Carolina court on a settled foreclosure that was conducted in another state, which also raises full faith and credit constitutional issues. So, in closing, we'd ask the court to reverse the Second Court of Appeals panel's decision uh, and affirm Judge Bell's Rule 12b-6 dismissal. Unless the court has other questions, I will reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from the FLA. Good morning, and may it please the court. My name is Caitlin Miller, and I represent the plaintiffs, or the appellees in this case. The Court of Appeals noted that the plaintiffs sufficiently alleged enough information to withstand a motion to dismiss. Once again, the Court of Appeals has gotten it right in this case. While responding to Mr. Kutro's arguments, I'd like to make three main points. My first is that North Carolina General Statute 1-52, paragraph 9, expressly states the test that we must use for deciding the statute of limitations for fraud. The second is that a jury should be the party to determine any questions involving whether the plaintiffs exercised reasonable diligence under the circumstances. And the third is that this motion is at a 12B6 stage. And that fact should color all of our arguments and discussions here today because we're still at the pleading stage. The first is that the very language of North Carolina General Statute 1-52 states, the statute of limitations for fraud, quote, shall not be deemed to have accrued until the discovery by the aggrieved party of the facts constituting the fraud or mistake. Now, interestingly, Mr. Kutro, not in his argument nor in his initial brief, did he quote that statute. And the reason is because if he quotes that statute, he loses. Instead, Mr. Kutro argues that the statute of limitations for fraud should run from the time that the plaintiffs discovered or should have discovered their injury. But in paragraph 9 of 1-52, it doesn't even use the word injury. 
Instead, that's the standard that's used when negligence is at issue. But here, fraud is at issue. And when we're looking at fraud, we have to look at the discovery of the fraud, not the discovery of the injury. Well, doesn't it say discovery of the facts constituting the fraud? That's correct, um, Justice Newby. It says the facts <coughs> constituting the fraud, which is very different from the facts constituting the knowledge of injury. Because again, the knowledge of injury is not even in the statute. So the difference here is, are we looking at the discovery of the facts constituting the fraud, or are we looking at knowledge of the injury? And in the fraud context, we're looking at the facts constituting the fraud as nothing to do with when the plaintiffs discovered their injury. But how do you square that argument with what the Court of Appeals said in Doe versus Charlotte Diocese? So the Doe versus Charlotte Diocese case is actually a good, uh, good point. And I wrote down when Mr. Coutreau was arguing the Doe versus, um, the Doe case is actually decided at the motion for summary judgment stage, which makes it a very different case. They also noted in that case that there was no evidence of concealment and there is evidence of concealment on the face of the complaint in this case, which makes those two cases not analogous. But on the, but what, what you're saying about what the statute means, what my, my point was, uh, I understand the Court of Appeals to be saying in that case that uh, that the clock could start running at the time, that at, at the latest, at some point after the, um, you know, that plaintiff was sexually abused by the priest because it was that action when it happened that started this inquiry notice that should have led to all these other things. And you can analogize that to this case and say, uh, the Judge Dillon was correct that there's sort of that same moment in this case would be the foreclosure because at that point, you know, there's no unringing the bell here. Some, you wanted a loan modification, your clients, and it's not going to happen. And then you need to figure out, you know, how, how could this have happened? And in a, you know, reasonable inquiry would have learned about all these other public matters of public record that show, as you've alleged, the exact facts and circumstances. So do, doesn't it seem to be exactly what was going on in the Doe case? And I understand your point about summary judgment, but I think the difference here may be that, you know, you, you, these are the allegations of, of the matters of public record are pleaded in your complaint, and that, that's why it could be resolved at Rule 12 stage. What, what's wrong with that? Really? So, Your Honor, the difference is, as we mentioned, it is at summary judgment stage. So, in the Doe case, you did have a record, and at the Doe case, the the court could determine what was reasonable based on the record. Here, we can only look at what's reasonable based in the complaint, and what's reasonable is always going to be left up to a jury at the 12B6 stage. So those, that makes those two cases very different. So uh, just so I'm clear, is it, so your position is like the, the question of whether these um, lawsuits that are, were matters of public record actually would have been discovered during the inquiry, that's you view as a fact question that a jury needs to resolve. That's correct, Your Honor, and, and I do want to talk a little bit more in answering your question on that. So Mr. Kutrow mentioned that there was um, lawsuits in the public record, and, and uh, your questions earlier asked about paragraph 32 of the complaint. So here's a really good illustration. Just two weeks ago, Mr. Kutrow and the bank filed the Carpenter case as a notice of supplemental authority in this case. And the Carpenter case, while not analogous to the case we have here today, because it's a Rule 60B case and it had nothing to do with the statute of limitations, the Carpenter case illustrates a really important point. It was filed, or excuse me, the order was entered in April of 2022. But Mr. Kutrow and the bank did not find that case until two weeks ago. And that's despite the fact that it was a Bank of America a case involving Mr. Kutrow's law firm, McGuire Woods. And yet it took him a year and a half to find that case. Whether that was reasonable or not, should be a jury question. And it may have been reasonable. Maybe it was a different attorney on it. Maybe he had nothing to do with that attorney. But just likewise, it may have been reasonable for my clients to take more than a year and a half to find the case because they were not lawyers. We're talking about school teachers and plumbers having to find cases in the public docket. Again, maybe that was reasonable, maybe it wasn't, but that's a jury question. And that's always gonna be a jury question. I'd also like to turn back to the Christenberry case in talking about 1-52 paragraph 9. Mr. Kutrow and the bank rely very heavily on the Christenberry case throughout their briefing and in their arguments. But the Christenberry case, authored by Chief Justice Newby, is actually a very different case than the one we have here today. And it's not analogous, and that holding does not apply. And the reasons is because, first, the Christenberry case was truly a breach of contract case. Now, while it's true that there were a number of allegations pled in the Christenberry case, one of which was fraud, it really was a breach of contract case. And there the court said that if the case was a, or excuse me, if the contract was an installment contract, then the statute of limitations would have started to run with each installment. But if the contract was not an installment contract, 
then the statute of limitations would have started to run at the beginning when the first breach happened. And ultimately, the court said it was not an installment contract. But the differences in that case and this case is, one, it turned on whether it was an installment contract, and two, parts of the language of the contract were actually incorporated in the complaint. So in that case, the plaintiff signed a contract, and we knew in the complaint that the plaintiff signed a contract guaranteeing them $500 a year at a minimum in addition to royalty payments. So in other words, the plaintiff knew they were guaranteed $500 each year. That case would be analogous to the one here if there was a contract that the plaintiffs had signed guaranteeing them a HAMP modification. But there was no such contract. Such a contract was not incorporated in the face of the complaint or attached to the complaint, so it's not the same case. And again, to the extent that the court uses the Christenberry case, we don't even need to get there because we can just look to 1-52 paragraph 9, which states that we look to the discovery of the facts constituting the fraud. That has nothing to do with discovery of the injury. So I have two follow-up questions to that. But first, I wanted to, just to understand the limiting principle, I want to go back to the question I was asking. So, you know, we just, we have a lot of context out there in our jurisprudence where if there's a matter of public record and some person has a duty to conduct some reasonable inquiry, that we just presume as a matter of law that that includes finding any matters of public record. So if you, if you're arguing, if you come in and you say, I didn't, this was a matter of public, so, you know, it often comes up in the real property context. And we just say, if it's something you, a reasonable person, you would find anything that's a matter of public record. So are, how do we, how are we going to square that if we say here, actually, we'll let a jury decide in every case, you know, how reasonable it would have been for, as you said, a teacher, um, you know, whatever person who's a non-lawyer to find this information. It seems like we have a potential here to really create a conflict in our jurisprudence about what that means. So, Your Honor, I, I disagree that there would be a conflict in the jurisprudence because to the extent the law indicates that you are, there's supposed to be some sort of duty to find what is in the public record, that duty applies to litigants. I have not found a single case that applies that duty to someone who has not yet filed a lawsuit. And that is a very different standard, just as the Carpenter case notes. The Carpenter case involved an active litigant, and it was at the 60B stage, which was at the end of the case. Here, we have, you know, like I mentioned, we have school teachers and plumbers who had not even hired an attorney yet. And so it's a different reasonableness standard, and that all goes back to the reason that it's a jury question. A jury should be the one to determine if it was reasonable in each context, and they can look at the whole context. But here we're at the 12B6 stage. So it's a much simpler question, because if it's on the face of the complaint, we can decide it. But since it's not, we can't. And I guess my follow-up to that is then, again, looking for kind of a limiting principle. One of the things that was going on in, in Doe versus Charlotte Diocese, I think, for the Court of Appeals, was that it was 40 years later. And uh, the idea was if, it, if you don't apply that inquiry notice to say when you were abused, you were then on notice that this position of trust that you thought you had with the church, that they would protect you, that, that the church had not done that. Similarly here, if we don't have that, what's to stop uh, someone 100 years from now, um, you know, they're in a nursing home, or some lawyer visiting them and saying, hey, by the way, did you know you have a lawsuit that you can bring against Bank of America? And it seems like that's completely inconsistent with this idea that you have to go out and conduct this inquiry, and then these presumptions we add on there that say what's reasonable in terms of finding the the information yourself. So, Your Honor, a couple of things. There, the limiting principle here is that there doesn't necessarily have to be one because we're at the motion to dismiss stage. We're still at the pleading stage. Limiting principles, like you're talking about in the Doe case, come up when there's a record and when the plaintiff has had a chance to testify. And as the Court of Appeals noted on paragraph 10 of their opinion, some of these issues about what was reasonable may be able to be determined at the motion for summary judgment stage. And that's certainly true. Some of those questions, like you mentioned, about what the plaintiffs found and what um, they may, should have found can be delved into by Mr. Kutro in the plaintiff's deposition. But we're not there yet. We're only at the motion to dismiss stage. And so they, we don't have a chance to develop a record. I, I guess my concern is I don't think, I, I don't see how in a case like this, getting to the summary judgment stage is going to matter. As I think you're acknowledging, you say reasonableness is a core question of fact that can't be decided um, by a judge. It has to be decided, well, or it has to be decided by a fact finder. It could be a judge at a bench trial, but the point is not at summary judgment, not at Rule 12. And so we're saying, we're talking a trial in every one of these cases, and there has to be some limiting principle that 
you know, when you're looking at cases like Doe that we could apply here to say that that can't be the, the law. And so what, what are, do you, are you proposing anything or do you just say, look, this is just how the law works. If, you know, if you're a teacher or a plumber and you, you don't know how to do public records requests, you don't, your clock doesn't start running until a lawyer finds you and tells you you had a claim. Sure, Your Honor. Well, uh, you know, my opinion would be that that's just the nature of the law here. A motion to dismiss is an intentionally liberal standard and says that it cannot be granted unless there are no set of facts to which grant give the plaintiffs relief. Here, there is a set of facts in the complaint that gives the plaintiffs relief, and therefore a motion to dismiss can't be granted. The difference is, and you said, you mentioned summary judgment, is it going to be any different on summary judgment? There's a different standard about what you can look at in the record, right? Because at the motion to dismiss stage, we can only look at the face of the complaint, and we have to take all of those as accepted as true. So accepting those as true, the plaintiffs have alleged that they did not discover the fraud until December of 2016 through April of 2017. There's nine different plaintiffs, and each of their dates fall within that range, but they've specifically pled when they discovered the fraud. At this stage, that's enough. Now, Mr. Kutro can ask at their depositions, did you ever see this news program, or did you ever hear about this lawsuit involving the federal government that's mentioned in paragraph 32? But the complaint says that they didn't know about those things. So at this stage, that's sufficient. Right. Maybe at so just, uh, just make sure I understand, you're saying at the summary judgment stage, the plaintiffs still have to come forward with evidence to create a material issue of fact here, and if they fail to do that, then a court can allow summary judgment. That's exactly correct, Your Honor. And if I can just follow up on the applicability of Doe, I mean, isn't it um, crucial that in that case, the court said this is not a case where Doe assort, asserts any fraudulent concealment by the church to hide its wrongdoing after the fact, and therefore concluding that when there's no allegation of fraudulent concealment, then they're on inquiry notice when, you know, he was on inquiry notice when he reached the age of 18, according to this court. Isn't that a, a, a fundamentally uh, important distinction between Doe and what we have here? Absolutely, Your Honor, and as I mentioned before, the court did find there that there was no evidence of fraudulent concealment. If at the motion for summary judgment stage, the court finds the same thing here, then motion for summary judgment could be granted. But here we're at the motion to dismiss stage, and I would like to point you, because Mr. Kutra mentioned that there were, was no evidence of fraudulent concealment in this complaint. That's not true. We have actually alleged that the bank shredded documents, deleted entire computer files, and repeatedly lied to the plaintiffs. That is fraudulent concealment. And that we have specifically alleged that the bank fraudulently concealed all of the facts surrounding the scheme to deny these HAMP modifications. But I, I'm confused, though, because the, in Doe, the, the fraudulent concealment they're talking about is concealment of the facts that the plaintiff would have know about that would say, I, need to br I can bring this claim. And if you've alleged in the complaint that there was this massive lawsuit involving 49 states and the federal government, with the identical facts and the identical legal issues. So how could anything about the fact that the claim exists have been concealed? They could, Your Honor, they concealed it from the plaintiffs. As our complaint mentions, the plaintiffs called the bank and asked, why did I not receive the HAMP modification? And the complaint specifically says that bank employees said to the plaintiffs, your paperwork was lost, or your paperwork was missing specific documents that you needed, or it was incomplete. I guess what I'm getting at is if you try to fraudulently conceal it and you fail, that won't toll the statute of limitations. It's only if you succeeded in concealing it that we will toll it. And even if you're alleging that the bank tried to fraudulently conceal it, they failed because the federal government found out about it. So did 49 state attorneys general and all these plaintiffs in the multi-district litigation. And they were all able to bring the claims that you say are identical to the ones you're pursuing here. So none of those facts actually got concealed. It, well, Your Honor, so I would respectfully disagree because what actually was concealed that matters was what was concealed from these plaintiffs. What was concealed from the federal government matters in that lawsuit, but it doesn't matter here. So the fact matters here is that the plaintiffs, the fraud was concealed from these plaintiffs, and they have alleged that. And we must accept that as true at this stage, that those facts were concealed from them. Let me ask it a different way to see if I can unpack it too, because one of the things that I struggled with the dissent, uh, the dissent on was <clears throat> the injury part. And so if you had a rightful loan modification denial or a rightful for foreclosure, that wouldn't be an injury, right? And I understood the Bank of America to sort of suggest, well, if you've, and the dissent, if you've had a foreclosure, you better just start examining everything. So is, is the distinction between Doe in this case that 
you know, abuse puts you on notice versus, you know, these plaintiffs may, you know, maybe it comes out in summary judgment that they saw the CNN report, but when they asked, they didn't think they apply, it applied to them because of the, so, so really it becomes a question of what's the injury that triggers a duty to look into. Does that make sense? It, it does, Your Honor, and that's actually a very good point because in this case, we have alleged that the injury is the wrongful denial of the HAMP modification. But as you mentioned, whether the foreclosure puts them on notice versus abuse puts them on notice, we've alleged in the complaint that the plaintiffs were rightfully foreclosed upon. But isn't the in logical problem with that that you have alleged, I think you just acknowledged it, that these plaintiffs were entitled to the loan modification? And they didn't get it. But so, they didn't know that they were entitled to the loan modification. Well, you allege they did know in the complaint. So they did not know that they were wrongfully denied the loan modification. But you, you've alleged that they did everything they needed to do in order to be entitled to the loan modification. But they didn't get it, and instead their home, they, they got foreclosure. So that is an indication, according to the allegations in the complaint, that the bank must have done something wrong. And then you have matters of public record that you allege ex show exactly what the bank did wrong, which is a massive fraud scheme, according to the allegations. So you, I, what's, I think what the dissent was doing is just pie piecing those two together and then using the presumption that you're aware of matters of public record when you do a reasonable inquiry that the plaintiffs had all the facts that they needed at the time of the foreclosure. So, Your Honor, to answer your question, I think it would be helpful to discuss the Phoebus case, which we've cited in our brief. The Phoebus case was about a faulty drainage pipe. And in that case, the plaintiffs relied on the defendant's assurances that the drainage pipe was installed correctly, even though it wasn't. They relied on those assurances. And the court said that those assurances were sufficient to create an issue of fact for the jury. In this case, we have a very similar circumstance. While the underlying facts are different, the plaintiffs called the bank, and the bank told them that they missed their, messed their application up, that they had incomplete applications. And so while the plaintiffs now know that they were entitled to the HAMP modification, they didn't know at the time that they were entitled to the modification. All they knew at the time was that they were doing everything they could to try to get that modification. They didn't know until December of 2016, until April of 2017, that they were actually entitled to it. But again, this court's decision noted that those reliances, whether or not those reliances on the defendant's reassurance was reasonable is a fact question. So we cannot determine at the 12B6 stage whether those reliances were reasonable or not, because again, it's not for a court to decide. It's a fact question for the jury. I'd also like to note, going backwards to the analysis of 1-52 paragraph 9, while the Christenberry case is not on all fours, the Jennings case, which we cite in our brief, is exactly on point. It's a motion to dismiss case, and it deals with the exact same statute. And this is a direct quote from the Jennings case. It says, we believe that plaintiff's assertion that they did not discover the fraud until September of 1981 is sufficient to establish the approximate date from which the statute of limitations began to run. Defendant's unsupported assertion to the contrary merely creates a conflict that in the procedural context of this case must be resolved in the plaintiff's favor. The exact same thing is true here. The plaintiffs have alleged exactly when they discovered the fraud. It was dates that ranged between December of 2016 and April of 2017. At the motion to dismiss stage, that is sufficient because the nature of a motion to dismiss says that we have to accept those allegations as true and we have to read them in the light most favorable to the plaintiffs. So the Jennings holding should apply exactly here. Mr. Kutrow's argument continues to say that the plaintiffs were well aware of their injuries. And that's true. They were well aware that they suffered foreclosure, and in some cases, bankruptcy. But they weren't aware of the facts constituting the fraud or mistake. And that's when the statute of limitations starts to run, not when they discover their injury. The other thing that North Carolina law requires is in the application of... I'm, I'm, I feel like we're using a non-legal definition of the word injury there then, because if you don't, in just a plain setting, if you don't pay your mortgage, you're going to lose your house. But that's not a legal injury. That's what the law dictates. So are you using the word injury in a different way than 
I'm thinking about it in terms of it, the injury is when, is when it's a wrongful foreclosure. That's, that's a very good point, Your Honor, and, and, and I certainly didn't mean to use injury in a different context there. Um, we've alleged that the initial injury was that they were denied the HAMP modification. They were supposed to get the HAMP modification. After they did not receive the HAMP modification, you bring up a good point, which is that they did miss their payments, which we've alleged in the complaint the reason they missed their payments was because the bank told them to, and those were reliances they, whether reasonably or not, relied on is up to the jury, but they relied on those assurances to miss their payments and then ultimately ended up in foreclosure or bankruptcy to avoid the foreclosure. And ultimately the foreclosure, yes, right. They missed their payments, they defaulted on their loan, they ended up in foreclosure. So that's why they had no reason to know that the foreclosure was wrongful because they missed their payments. But everything you just said in response to Justice Riggs' question gets exactly to what I'm struggling with because you just acknowledged that the allegations and the complaints say we did everything right to get the loan modification. We didn't get the loan modification. And then, because we didn't have the loan modification, we couldn't make the payments, we went into foreclosure. And now, we'll never get a loan modification because once that happens, it's over. And so that tells you everything to need, you need to know about the fact that if there was some reason we didn't get the loan modifications that was not our fault, we got scammed by the bank, we've got a claim. And then out there, you know, all over the place in public records, are all the facts you need to know about the allegations, which you say are the exact ones you're making in this case. The United States has argued it, attorneys generals and other states have argued it, et cetera, et cetera. So it seems to me that you can add all that together and you've got you know, the inquiry notice you need to say the statute's running. So I'm just missing the piece other than if what you're just saying is it's really just a fact question. The reasonableness of whether you'd find those records is something a jury has to decide. That's 100% correct, Your Honor. The reasonableness of whether or not these plaintiffs should have found those records is a question for the fact finder. This, case, this court's decision in the Forbes case states exactly that. It says that a jury should be the party to determine if a person should have discovered the fraud. This is particularly true when the evidence is inconclusive or conflicting. A jury has to be the one to determine that. That's the entire nature of a motion to dismiss. That's the entire nature of a pleading stage. A motion to dismiss can only be granted if it's evident on the face of the complaint that their case is barred. And it's not evident here. There's nowhere on the face of the amended complaint that says the plaintiffs discovered the fraud earlier than December of 2016 through April of 2017. Nowhere does it say they discovered it. Whether they should have discovered it before is not for an appellate court or a judge to decide, it's for a jury to decide. Because again, that's the nature of a 12B6 motion. So again, it's just a reasonableness question. And Mr. Kutrow mentioned several times before that it was not reasonable for the plaintiffs to miss these things in the court's docket. He missed the Carpenter case for a year and a half. Was that reasonable? I'm not sure. That's why a jury has to be the one to make that decision. Because again, it's a 12B6 stage. We don't need to look any further than this. We don't need to overcomplicate this case any. It's a 12B6 motion. A jury has to be the one to decide. And as Justice Earls mentioned, there may be facts that come up during discovery that allow the plaintiffs, or excuse me, allow the defendants to say, this is evidence that shows the plaintiffs knew about it earlier. But all we know right now is that the plaintiffs have alleged they didn't know about it earlier, and that they could not have known about it earlier. And to your point, Justice Dietz, I think it's a very dangerous standard to require plaintiffs who have not even hired attorneys yet, who aren't lawyers, to search and scour the public docket for any case that might be applicable. And again, that's just not what the law is. The law doesn't require them to do that. The law says a jury may say it was reasonable that they did, or may say it was reasonable that they didn't. But is part of that inquiry notice during the period when the, the limitations period is running, is part of that inquiry notice include the duty to go consult an attorney who could have found these things? So to the extent it requires, there's no, there's no legal obligation that plaintiffs consult an attorney. No, Your Honor. That being said, Mr. Kutra says there's no evidence on the face of the complaint that the plaintiffs engaged in diligence to find out what was wrong. But that's not true. We have specifically alleged that they called their bank representatives who they trusted, just like in the Phoebus case. They talked to the defendants who they trusted. They didn't know that they were being lied to. So there's no obligation that you contact an attorney. And to the extent Mr. Kutra argues that 
plaintiffs have the capacity and the opportunity to discover the fraud because they could have hired attorneys years earlier, once again, that's not on the face of the amended complaint. There's nothing in the amended complaint that says the plaintiffs could have hired attorneys earlier. And because it's not on the amended complaint, we have to read that as in the light most favorable to the in the light most favorable to the plaintiffs. So we cannot just assume that they could have hired attorneys earlier because it's not on the face of the complaint. And again, as I mentioned before, we're at the 12B6 stage, so you can't read that into the complaint. And whether or not their failure to hire an attorney in 2013 versus in 2016 was reasonable, once again, goes back to a jury question. I would like to briefly address the res judicata arguments that Mr. Kutcher has made. First of all, I would note that in the dissent, this dissent or Judge Dillon's original dissent, not once does it mention res judicata. Because of North Carolina Appellate Procedure Rule 16B, that issue cannot be raised here. There is a procedure by which Mr. Kutcher and the bank can petition this court to hear the res judicata argument, but he didn't do so and it wasn't listed in the opinion. He's relying solely on the fact that Judge Dillon said, I agree with Judge Bell. That's insufficient because, again, North Carolina Rules of Appellate Procedure 16B said that the reasons must be specifically stated in the dissent. Res judicata is not If specific. we affirm here, Excuse me? if we affirm in this case that we, we would have to send it back for somebody to decide that, right? Because the trial court ruled against you on that. The initial Court of Appeals panel agreed with that and then it seems to have gotten lost along the way somewhere. So what, what is your proposal, what we would do? We affirm and remand for the Court of Appeals to consider that issue? That's correct, Your Honor. I would, I would propose that we completely affirm the Court of Appeals decision, which had nothing to do with res judicata, is only on statute of limitations grounds. But I do want to briefly address why res judicata is not an affirmative defense that works in this case. And the first reason is because res judicata requires it to be an issue that could have been previously litigated. If we accept all of the allegations on the face of the amended complaint is true, the plaintiffs did not know about the fraud at the time of their foreclosure. And that prevents res judicata from being into effect. The second reason is we are not seeking to overturn the foreclosure judgments. And in order for res judicata to apply, you have to be seeking to overturn that foreclosure judgment. We are seeking a money judgment here. And as the Edwards case mentioned, when you're seeking two different remedies, res judicata does not apply. The third reason is because some of the states in question, in this case, actually use a non-judicial foreclosure process. Some of them use a judicial foreclosure process. And we would have to look specifically at whether res judicata applies or not. And Mr. Kutcher will argue that the Funderburk case says that it can apply in North Carolina to non-judicial foreclosures. But that's not necessarily the case in every state. And again, it just wasn't looked into by any of the Court of Appeals panels. It's not an issue before this court. In closing, I have a few more moments. I would like to encourage Mr. Kutro to tell you where on the face of the amended complaint it says that the plaintiffs discovered the fraud earlier than December of 2016 through April of 2017. He's likely to point to you when they discovered their foreclosure or when they saw that their HAMP was denied. But that's not the standard. It's notice of fraud. Thank you, counsel. Thank you. Rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, my opponent here argues for a rule that would allow for an entirely subjective, actual knowledge standard to apply and govern the statute of limitations, where any plaintiff could escape the statute of limitations by simply reciting, I did not know and I could not know in those conclusory subjective terms, or where any lawyer could reset the statute of limitations by providing information, even old, stale information, so long as it was new to that particular plaintiff. And that jettisons the objective standard for notice inquiry and reasonable diligence that is uniformly adhered to in this court's precedence. I understood your friend was arguing something else, which is that let's say this case moves on to discovery. You're going to take a deposition uh, of the plaintiffs, and you're going to ask the question, say, what, what's after you're at the foreclosure, what did you do? What diligence did you get? And if, if you have the Doe versus Charlotte Diaz scenario where uh, either the plaintiffs say, well, I didn't do anything, then you're going to get summary judgment. But if they say, well, I did some Google searches. I, I didn't find anything, though. I'm not very good at 
searching public records. Your friend says that a jury needs to decide whether that was objectively a reasonable diligence or not. And so every case like that will go to a jury. What, what's your response to that argument? Well, um, one, one response is that it's clear from the face of the complaint, as we've already covered, that there, was, there were vast amounts, and it's not crawling through court dockets. It's widespread national publicity about the problems associated with this program. It is um, uh, the national mortgage settlement uh, that was publicized uh, through uh, various forms of the government. And remember, these folks are all, all of these plans were people who had the ability to learn about the HAMP program in the first place, to apply for it, to engage in communications about it. And, and we would submit that that uh, establishes on the face of the complaint that in the exercise of diligence, they could have understood that the problems that they have recited in the complaint were problems that they might be able to bring a lawsuit about back in 2012 or 2013. And I would point back to the original Court of Appeals opinion because it goes back and looks at, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but it says plaintiff's, claim, plaintiff's claims all allege roughly the same set of facts that they applied for a hemp mod, that they were asked to submit paperwork, they were asked to resubmit paperwork, and then they were denied relief after believing that they'd done everything required for, of them. These issues range from 2009 through 2014. They all claim they did not realize these were actionable harms until speaking to attorneys in 2017, yet by 2011, as acknowledged in plaintiff's complaint, defendant was already defending lawsuits for, it, for its practices. It is clear from the face of the complaint that plaintiffs knew something was wrong with their applications at the time. It is likewise clear that had plaintiffs engaged in some simple research or consulted a lawyer, that's my interpolation, they would have heard about the ongoing litigation involving defendants' business practices. Our courts have determined that a plaintiff cannot simply ignore facts which should have been obvious to him or would have been readily discoverable upon reasonable inquiry. Um, that, I think, answers the question of whether the face of this complaint shows that the plaintiffs were on notice inquiry well before uh, they uh, filed their lawsuits. Um, that's just not the the standard that our courts have set. And what is the limiting principle to your question, Justice Dietz? If, if a new plaintiff who was denied a HAMP loan modification back in 2012 finds his way to plaintiff's counsel next week, is the statute of limitations told as to that individual newcomer? Can that plaintiff file a new case 20 years after foreclosure and the injury complained of? Lawyers are not magicians who can waive a declaration and make a statute of limitations disappear. Um, the standard that uh, the, the actual knowledge subjective standard that my friend argues for would, would essentially necessitate at least an extensive discovery record and a trial in every case, and that's not the, the standard that our cases set. Um, to, the, to the point about the, um, and I, I, I will say, there's no fraud, what, what was narrated as, as allegations of fraudulent concealment, there's none of that after the time of the foreclosure, certainly. I'd submit that if you look at the complaint, there's none of that pled. Uh, uh, in, in uh, ex after the loan modifications are finally determined. So there's no fraudulent concealment after those notice uh, giving events. Um, to respond to the point about 1-529, that was addressed in Christenberry because among the claims that were dealt with in Christenberry, not just a contract claim, but a fraudulent concealment claim and a UDTPA claim, which is also one of the fraud-based claims that we're dealing with here. And in footnote four, the court explains um, that the fo focus there, as we and we've covered this in our brief, is on the facts that put the, put the plaintiff on notice, not that the plaintiff must know every fact that might conceivably support a fraud claim. If that were the standard, the statute of limitations wouldn't start running until we got to the end of discovery. And that can't be a workable rule. Uh, I'll just note that a couple of the um, points uh, that Ms. Ms. Miller made uh, about facts constituting fraud and about the installment contract as aspect of, of um, Christenberry, I think we've dealt with effectively in our uh, reply brief. And, uh, you know, FIBUS, the drainage pipe case, has gotten a lot of discussion in the briefing here, but there, what is 100% clear is that the lawsuit was timely brought after the pipe actually failed and caused an injury. Uh, that is equivalent here to the lawsuit needs to be filed after the loan that you thought you were entitled to was not modified and you proceeded to foreclosure. You're on notice at that point that you need to bring a claim and you, or you need to at least investigate in some way that's not pled in this amended complaint uh, whether or not you have a claim. 
So uh, to conclude, uh, I'll, I'll offer a couple of, of uh, points, and I go back to the court's opinion in Christenberry. Uh, statutes of limitation require the pursuit of claims to occur within a certain period of time after discovery, thereby striking the balance between one's right to assert a claim and another's right to be free from a stale claim. Statutes of limitation operate inexorably without reference to the merits of a cause of action, thereby preventing surprises through the revival of claims that have been allowed to slumber. Um, and I will just argue for a rule that will not permit some future litigant to omit key facts from, a, uh, from an amended complaint and thereby somehow dodge uh, the kind of analysis that we've been able to put forward today. The court held uh, in Christenberry that all the plaintiff's fraudulent concealment and UDTPA claims were barred by the statute of limitations and the court should reach the same result here. Thank you, counsel. I believe your time's expired. Thank you. Thank you to both. Clark.